that's really why I got into triathlon is I wanted to build resilience in myself and, um, you know, try to have an avenue forward. So now I, I've expanded from running and, and I do swimming and cycling and I also do strength training several days a week. And that actually made it such a huge difference to some of the problems in hindsight that I dealt with uh, being hypermobile. Interestingly, and things that I never would have put two and two together, but my eye and coordination improved, you know, suddenly I'm better at throwing darts and playing pool and, you know, uh, small things like that, throwing, just throwing, playing catch with my son. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today has her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. She's a former collegiate runner at the College of New Jersey, currently an amateur triathlete, and moving up a distance, so hopefully we'll talk about that eventually. Uh, she's also a certified personal trainer. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cheryl Keller Capone. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jesse. I, I, I waffled on whether to add the doctor there. We talked about that before we got going, but I decided to go for it. <laughs> which is which is nice. I'm glad. So anybody watching on YouTube versus listening on iTunes or SoundCloud will see this nice stack of what looks like research folders behind Cheryl. So it's like a, a nice backdrop to, <laughs> to a, a professor's you know office, I assume. Yes, there you go. So um, you ran in college. You were telling me we, before we got going, we were kind of talking about this, uh, I'll say contentious topic of your college's name was changed. What happened there? Why, why did they change it? So when I went to school there, it was called Trenton State College. And uh, Trenton being in New Jersey um, has not had uh, the greatest, uh, people who think of Trenton, New Jersey, and they kind of had I thought was a bit of a negative connotation towards okay. the school. So they went with something, the College of New Jersey. But those of us who graduated when it was Trenton State College were, of course, unhappy about the, the name change. And they did offer us new diplomas with the name change on it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that everyone who graduated when I did absolutely refused. We stuck with our old uh, <laughs> our old diplomas. <laughs> it seems so they, so they went back and tried to, like, retcon all the old <laughs> diplomas and give you new ones? It's really hard to even find. Now they actually are selling even some old uh, alumni gear with Trenton State on it, but it, it was really yeah. hard to find for a while. Now it's retro. That, <laughs> that just seems odd. Like um, the college my dad went to, they changed their name, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. And he went there much earlier than you attended college. And um, I, he definitely didn't get anything that was like, Hey, let's let's replace your university degree with something that has the new college name. It just seems odd. I understand rebranding, but I don't know why you would go through the the paperwork like that. Yeah, I don't know if that they wanted to erase it. I think they were just offering it to people if they wanted. Okay, okay, okay. I'm with you now. Um, so you ran then. I I think you've you mentioned before we got going, and I think I read in the the bio that you sent over that. You kind of dealt with injuries over the years and you kind of moved to triathlon. Was that predicated on like injured, just being injured running and you needed more cross training type stuff or what kind of predicated the change? Well, there are several factors. Uh, first is I'm hypermobile. So I, I've always tended to have a lot more um, joint laxity and that then can, you know, predispose you to um, more injuries just because it is actually harder to. Uh, control all your body movements is it, and strength can actually help quite a bit with that. But I, I hadn't really been aware of that or, um, you know, information was not quite as easily available as it is now, you know, back mm -hmm. when I was growing up. And uh, so I, I never quite realized might, what might be a good um, treatment or a lifestyle way to help address that. But I did wind up getting um, injured quite a bit. And the other factor in hindsight was I found out about a decade ago that I have a spondylolisthesis, which is uh, in the lumbar spine. And what that really means is my uh, L4 vertebrae is uh, translated anteriorly or shifted forward a little bit on L5. And so that 
is actually a kind of a common injury in um, gymnasts and uh, in which usually result it, as a child, if it happens as a child, um, what happens is the, uh, in the, it's a sort of a stress fracture that occurs in um, part of the spine, usually in the, in the lumbar region. And it's often as a result of like a repetitive lumbar hyperextension, which is why, you know, mm -hmm. gymnasts are always in that kind of hyperextension. Uh, for me, it happened when I was 13, I was doing a karate class. I've been taking karate for a number of years and we were doing these bilateral leg raises, a lot of them. And honestly, I just did not have the strength and control to control uh, my lumbar spine, my pelvic, uh, lumbopelvic um, area. So instead of actually just doing leg raises, it wound up being more like repetitive hyperextension of my lumbar mm -hmm. spine. And so I wound up with a, a really bad um, back pain and it lasted for many years. And I, I really never got appropriate treatment for it. This was back in the early to mid eighties. And you know, although my mom took me to a doctor, it was not, uh, they were just kind of like, oh, you're fine. It's just a muscle. In, in hindsight, uh, you know, many years later, uh, and then they didn't have MRIs back then. And, but you could see evidence of very old um, PARS fracture, which is what it's called, uh, on the MRI. And then over time, you know, it has slipped forward some. So that also is, is likely plays a role in a lot of my pain and injuries, because I've had a lot of sciatica and some back pain, you know, even as growing up all the way through, you know, high school, college, and I didn't really let it stop me. I just kept running. Um, eventually it kind of caught up to me in around 2009, 2010, after my son was born in 2005, I started to get back into running and uh, I was increasing my mileage, was increasing my distance. I was doing great. And then kind of the injury started piling up again. And I went through a, sort of a really long number of years of chronic pain, uh, which I had to completely take a break from running. And when I returned, uh, you know, and I think as many runners, you know, really associate themselves that that's their identity, right? So I'm a runner. And after not being able to run for many years, you know, I felt like a part of me was sort of stripped away. And I could not, um, I really struggled with that. And I really, that's when I got into strength training, and really uh, build up built up my strength and it made a world of difference. And it, I really had to sort of face reality and try to move forward and think, you know what, I don't want to be in a position again, where if I can't run, I, you know, am not prepared emotionally and psychologically to deal with that. So I decided that I wanted to take on some other sports like swimming and cycling I'd never swam as a kid, so that was really challenging. But I really felt, you know what, I'm going to give myself some other avenues. This way, if I can't run for whatever reason, you know, I can, I can bike and I can swim. And I, I'm just a very competitive person in, in terms of sports. You know, psychologically, I like to compete. And uh, that, that gives me another avenue to get, you know, those endorphins and, <laughs> and really push myself. So I, that's really why I got into triathlon is I wanted to build resilience in myself and, um, you know, try to have an avenue forward. So now I, I've expanded from running and, and I do swimming and cycling and I also do strength training several days a week. And that actually made it such a huge difference to some of the problems in hindsight that I dealt with uh, being hypermobile. Interestingly, and things that I never would have put two and two together, but my eye and coordination improved, you know, suddenly I'm better at throwing darts and playing pool and, you know, uh, small things like that, throwing, just throwing, playing catch with my son, you know, just having a better arm. And, you know, I realized that I just did not have, um, I guess the coordination. So in strength training, not only, you know, you build strength, but you're really training like the, the motor, you know, the nervous system. Right. And I think that that's, uh, you know, going through really focusing heavily on technique and form and really training those basic motor patterns you know, was such a benefit to me, not just recovering from chronic pain, but also it's kind of the underlying hypermobility. So, I, you know, that's, it's kind of an odd way of getting into triathlon, but I, I, I celebrated, <laughs> um, I kind of used my first triathlon. It was just a sprint try, really small local sprint try, but I, I used that as I considered it, um, to celebrate my recovery from chronic pain. And, you know, since then I've been 
you know, going pretty hard back at it. And, you know, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I, I think sometimes it's hard. For, like, I definitely had uh, an identity as a runner. And I think sometimes I still do, although I think I finally made the transition after several years of triathlon to thinking of myself, myself as a triathlete. Was, that transition was very, very hard. And it, for people that don't have that thing like that, I think it's hard to relate having that identity stripped away, not voluntarily, you know, being like, you just can't do this thing anymore. And you're like, but that's the thing that makes me who I am and how, you know, the story that I tell myself about who I am. So what am I now? And, you know, I know I kind of went through that, even though um, I, I was still competing. Like I, uh, I was in a crash. I think you may have heard about me talk about this with Cecilia on that episode, um, episode six. I was in a crash and I broke my collarbone and that kind of stopped my like pursuit of trying to become a professional triathlete. And that was an identity I'd held basically from middle of college all the way through a couple of years ago. So all like almost an eight, nine year period of just intense focus day after day after day. And then it was like, hitting the pavement and it was all over was and I, only like, yeah psychologically like yeah, i was just broken i mean even after i recovered i don't I, I think only now maybe we're 18 months on from that injury am i starting to feel like maybe i'm more like myself again i mean it's been it's definitely even a year after i was like i'm better but i still notice I still notice being more positive now, mm -hmm. you know, being more motivated to like, no, I'm, I'm still competing. Um, though I'm not after a pro card, but just more interested in being competitive in what I do for work and, and, and working out and all that kind of stuff. So I can certainly sympathize the, the issues going through that, where that's like taken away from you. And then you have no idea, you know, what to do from there. Sure. So I, I was kind of curious, like you, so when you were young in that karate class, was it like an acute injury, like a moment where, where something happened and you could pinpoint it to that? Or, or how did you, how are you able to pinpoint it to that particular um, activity, I guess? Sure. That's a good question. Uh, I think I, I, every time we would do them, we would do them routinely. Like go to class, I don't know, maybe two days, two, three days a week. It's kind of hard. It was a while ago, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, we would routinely do these um, leg raises and, you know, you'd kind of put your hands under your butt a little bit, right, to kind of say to support your back. But, uh, you know, I remember being my back being a little sore, but I do distinctly remember one class where afterwards I just had very severe back pain to the point where, you know, I, I was having trouble sitting and standing and doing anything. And I was 13 years old and, you know, if a child, you know, that age has pretty severe back pain, you know, nowadays they take it seriously. And back then it just, I don't know, people really didn't give it much uh, consideration that it was going to be anything serious. I, you know, well, it's sort of sad, right? I mean, had I gotten appropriate treatment yeah. back then, I could might have been able to avoid a number of, um, you know, injuries and pain, you know, growing up. But, you know, that's the way things go sometimes. Do you have a really, on your um, tri-bike, do you use aero bars? I don't. I actually have a road bike. Okay. Um, and I thought about getting a tri-bike with the spondylolisthesis. It's, it's, it's a grade two, which means there is at least about a 25% um, slip of L4 forward on L5. I'm actually not sure if that's the greatest idea. Well, actually, I like flexion. Um, it's really extension that bothers me more than flexion. So uh, I think, you know, I would not have any pain that way being in, in a flex position, but I don't know if that's a little bit too aggressive in terms of like a long, any long-term strain. I, I do still work with a, a physical therapist. So I had a couple, last fall, I had had um, kind of a little bit of an aggravation of symptoms and I'm still training and so forth, but I've been working with a great physical therapist uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to run that by her on that because I'd, I'd really like to get a dry bike, but right now, you know, honestly for me, swimming is my limiter. You know, if I, 
I'm actually a pretty fast runner and uh, I'm pretty strong on the bike, you know, for, for riding like a road bike position, but unless mm, I did that for years and still was like top of the age group. So you could definitely do it. It's not, it's not that you can't do it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it may, it does make a difference. I mean, the bike, a lot of times it's, yep. you know, it's won or lost, but you know, if I, if I can't complete the, you know, a 70.3 swim, then right. really, you know, we're, shouldn't I be focusing more on that, you know, than, than worrying too much about getting an arrow. Uh, I, my swimming's improved a lot, but I mean, I, and I'm not afraid of the water. I, you know, I grew up in the, on the Jersey shore going in the ocean and swimming in swimming pools, but I never really learned to stroke, uh, until, so I'm 48 now. I was about almost 45. I think when I first started trying, deciding I was going to take some swim lessons and learn to stroke properly. And I mean, I really struggled with just putting my face in the water which is funny because I'm actually certified or I was certified scuba diver, right? So like scuba mm. diving, you know, down, you know, 80, hundred feet. And yet I'm like, ah, my face is in the water five inches. I'm like, <laughs> but I think it's just, obviously it's more of a mental, a mental thing. And, but I was really determined that I really wanted to you know, try to transition to triathlon. And I was like, well, you know, like, you know, unless I'm going to do a duathlon, I got to get a handle on this. And I sort of forced myself to overcome those fears. Um, I, I have done some open water swims uh, in sprint distance and, you know, I tend to start on the outside and, you know, let people kind of get going, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, but and I, you know, for, you know, like an average, you know, hundred meter or hundred yard time. I mean, it, I'm not terribly slow in the pool. I mean, I'll do repeats in like, I don't know, 140 or something for hundred yards, but it, you know, it's not fast, but it's not super slow either. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I, I feel like I'm getting much more comfortable. I'm slowly working on increasing my distance. So, you know, I'm going to try a, uh, try an Olympic this year. I'm already signed up for Escape the Cape. Have you heard about that one in New Jersey? So you actually uh, jump off a ferry mm -hmm. <laughs> to start the swim. So it's the Cape May Loose Ferry, and they take you out. Uh, so it's a 1,500-meter swim, and you literally jump off the ferry. It's a 12-foot jump, and then you swim to shore. So, you know. Might as well go full, <laughs> full forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, once you're off, you're off. There's no, there's no going back. It's, it's, it's like the same format as um, I haven't raced this either, but Alcatraz does a format like that where they take you out on the ferry and then you jump off and you swim from there. Theirs is, it, it's not an Olympic distance. I can't remember what, what exactly the distances are, but it's, it's a very swim heavy race. Mm. So like uh, one of my coaches, I think she won it one year. She's a former all-american swimmer at stanford so that makes sense um but yeah i it, kind of funny i wonder if it's the same series because it, it's an escape from alcatraz escape the cape i wonder if it's the same race directors doing both i don't think so because i think that the one does escape the cape is like delmo bar it's a like a delaware new jersey group. okay but uh yeah it, it seemed kind of interesting and they, they they make sure to drop you off so you're swimming with the current Mm -hmm. so uh it'll, it'll be fun a it, um what's the water temperature like do you know yeah, that's a good question it's mid-june i think it's june 14th and they say that the water temperature could be as low as the low 60s but as often in the mid to upper 60s oh so, well, then you should be able to go, yeah. go be wetsuit legal so yeah, that doesn't yeah. help. And, and i'm actually fine if it's warm enough i'm, I'm fine swimming without a wetsuit you know that's that's not yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I you know wetsuit and the salt water should be enough buoyancy, I think. Yeah, um, have you done open water swims in salt water yet? Yeah, I did. I, last uh, summer we took a trip down to Virginia Beach and the water was like glass. And okay. um, yeah, I, I spent some time swimming back and forth, and you know, as long as it, once it, again there was not that many waves, so I guess that's the, the big thing that some people get a little bit seasick, and uh, you know, but hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> yeah, I just. The, the reason I asked was the first time I did it. So I'm in the Midwest, so it's almost all lakes. I mean, I travel, but predominantly I'm not dealing with saltwater. So the very first time I did, did one in saltwater, like the salt was so overwhelming, just hitting you in the face and in the mouth. And you're like, like that's strong. It's yeah. just, you don't deal with it here. You know, you got muddy water and stuff, but that's completely different to that. So I was just curious if you, if you've been through that before. Well, we don't have a lot of uh, oceans here in central Pennsylvania either. So 
you know, most of the ones I list swims I've done in open water or lakes as well. But I, you know, having spent some time down the shore, uh, I've tried to take advantage of that. But yeah, you know, you really kind of want to just have a glass of fresh water after. <laughs> <laughs> Got to rinse your mouth out. Yeah. Um, lost my train of thought. That's okay. Um, so I want to transition a little bit and talk a little bit about your research. You, it seems like um, from your kind of CV background page you sent me, um, you've done a lot of different things. Um, I will probably have to stop you at various points and ask explanations on various pieces of jargon as I, you know, try to work my way through what you've done. Um, so can you start with like what you worked on as your dissertation for your PhD and we'll kind of try to move forward from there or hit the high points, I guess. Sure. So uh, I did, I will preface this by saying I did wind up doing my PhD postdoc and now my current position all at Penn State University. That was not my original plan. It is discouraged, uh, especially in life sciences and some other fields as well, to stay in the same spot. It's considered that you were, you know, not really broadening your horizons and your ability to contribute, you know, uh, intellectually could decrease, you know, the longer you're staying at a certain place. But, you know, I, I stayed, I made the decision to stay for personal reasons. You know, I met my future husband as I was uh, finishing up my PhD. So that's why I stayed in. And, and uh, you know, and I'm, I'm fine with my choices uh, in that respect. So when I was in, uh, did my PhD, I uh, studied muscle development in fruit flies. And first thing that a lot of people are like, oh, muscle, fruit flies have muscles, but, you know, they fly, <laughs> they walk. So, yeah. Uh, and we specifically studied embryonic muscle development so that the, the muscles that would form uh, when the, it's a developing embryo and that the larva would use to crawl around on, you know, the meat or whatever they're going to eat. And we, I studied a gene called Nautilus. And what we realized that that gene does, there's several, um, they call paralogs. And, and what that means is related genes in like um, vertebrates. Um, and the, they're like muscle regulatory factors. And we, uh, the, the gene that we studied in Drosophila was responsible for differentiation of muscle precursors. So when muscles are first forming, they're, you know, they don't look like a muscle. They don't look like a striated muscle, right? It just looks like a round cell that might express some muscle proteins like myosin and actin. But when you're actually differentiating or forming into the more mature muscle type, you know, what are the genes responsible for, um, for that process? And we found that this gene Nautilus that I worked on was responsible for uh, a subset of muscle differentiation in the embryo. And we use a variety of different approaches, uh, a lot of genetics and molecular biology. I did a lot of microscopy uh, during that time. So, uh, I, I really felt like it was, um, a really good experience. I felt like I learned a lot. Um, and I came out of there though, and, uh, kind of wanted to switch things up a little bit. And like I said, I stayed here at Penn state. So I wanted to um, broaden my knowledge and my experience base as, as much as possible. So I actually switched, I did switch fields. Some people will actually stay in the same field that they get their PhD in. And for me, I decided to switch and did um, GABA receptors in mice. And GABA receptors are responsible for the majority of inhibitory neurotransmission in the central nervous system. So to kind of, you know, calm things down, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that again was, um, I did a lot of uh, work with uh, mouse neurons, primary mouse neurons that we had to dissect out of these tiny little 14 day embryos, which I felt very bad about. But um, the, the worst thing actually was when I was doing these mouse dissections is doing these with little forceps and I could, I had to do it under a dissecting scope. And every time we did dissections, I could not drink any caffeine that morning. <laughs> That was probably the worst thing about it, right? I was like, I really want a cup of coffee, but it, it was that was so tiny that you really did not have the control, you know, to really get in there and do these dissections. So your, your dexterity would be affected by the caffeine, you know? Yeah, okay. and I, I mean, I mean, it, because not any noticeable. It's not like I would notice it if I was, you know, taking notes of the pencil or doing anything else. But when you're actually trying to 
you know, dissect really, really small things under a microscope, it was just enough that you did, you lost a little bit of that uh, control. Yeah, so that, that was, um, but so I did that for a couple of years and um, I wound up studying this one. So the, these GAB receptors, um, the gamma subunit, so it, GAB receptors are made up of a number of different proteins that together form the receptor. And one of those uh, piece, one of those proteins is this gamma subunit. And I worked on trying to find various um, proteins that might interact with this gamma subunit to try and control, just to try and learn more about how these GABA receptors cluster um, in synapses. So what you, in general, right, so receptors, um, neural neuron receptors will be at synapses where you have an axon and then you have your dendrite and your receptors will cluster together uh, underneath the ax um, axon to receive input. And what we were trying to figure out is what are the mechanisms behind clustering of these GAB receptors at synapses. And so I did some screens to look for interacting proteins and I discovered uh, the first mammalian um, palmitol transferase. And what that means is for, it is an enzyme that attaches a palmitol group, which is a fatty acid, uh, to um, this, this gamma subunit, which would then affect, uh, affect its clustering. It would allow, uh, it affect how the, the receptor um, gets to the cell surface and gets recycled back and so forth. So that's sort of what I worked on as a postdoc. So I, I kind of, you know, I did a couple already, I'm switching model systems, you know, I worked with fruit flies and I worked with mice. <laughs> Uh, and, and I enjoyed both those things. Um, and after that, I kind of felt like I needed a break from academia. And I thought, oh, I just, I need to kind of get out of here and see what else is out there. Unfortunately, here in State College, Pennsylvania, I mean, Penn State is the largest employer of uh, science people. Uh, there are a few companies around, but there's really not a lot of options as if there would be, you know, in a bigger city where you know, there might be pharmaceutical companies or biotech, and we just don't really have that here. But I did work for a small company um, who did mitochondrial DNA forensics. So this is back um, 2004, and we trying to remember when the human genome was first sequenced. I wanna say 2001? That's what I wanted to say offhand, but I would trust you more than me on that. Say that, around that, yeah, a little before that, but it really wasn't, Nowadays, you can do you know whole genome sequencing pretty fast. In fact, that's what I do for a living now. But um, <laughs> it's DNA sequencing. But um, you know, back then it was harder to um, sequence you know DNA from blood and so forth. But the other thing too is that mitochondria, so red blood cells, um, do not have mitochondria. Um, well, no, they don't have nuclei. So you have uh, if you wanted to isolate DNA from red blood cells, you could get mitochondrial DNA, but you're not going to get uh, you know, nuclei DNA, so genomic DNA. So, but anyway, we would, uh, so a lot of what we would do would be to get um, like samples of bone and hair in, uh, especially a lot of hair samples. And a lot of it was cold cases where we would isolate mitochondrial DNA um, from old hair samples and a lot of it was trying to more like exclude people as being, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, exclude people from, you know, committing the crime, right? So were they convicted and based on some evidence, but there was not any DNA evidence and, you know, there might've been some old hair samples um, or blood samples or something from, uh, from the case. And a lot of times we would test those and look to see whether there was a match to, you know, the, the person who was being accused of the crime. So it's kind of, it was interesting. I learned a lot about uh, quality control at that point uh, and really, you know, taking, not that I was not careful as a scientist, but when you, you're thinking that you might have somebody's um, not actual survival life on the line, but their livelihood in terms of whether or not this person is in jail or not, right? You know, um, 
you realize, you know, you take a lot of responsibility for that and be like, wow, I, I you know, I'm really affecting, could potentially really affect somebody's life. And I think it really kind of stepped up my awareness in terms of, um, you know, sample handling and, and quality control and things like that. So I think that actually I made for a pretty good, for me, a good transition to my current position. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll go into it in a minute, but I actually wound up, after I left there, I took a couple years off from that. I sort of stayed at home and worked part-time when I had my son in 2005. And I never really left science. Uh, I taught a couple of classes in the evening, a couple of molecular biology classes, and I did some freelance work for some publishing companies where I wrote some test chap- test questions for uh, online material, uh, study material, and things like that. Um, before then, I got my current position, so as an associate research professor, uh, and we study blood cell development. And, you know, mostly I do a lot of DNA sequencing, which is really kind of fun. <laughs> so I want to uh, back up a little bit. You were oh, talking about... Uh, <laughs> no, you know, you're fine. Um, I was just, like, trying to keep notes and trying to, like, remember, okay, I want to ask about this and that. There was something about Nautilus I wanted to ask, but I just wrote that down, and then I lost oh, my question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Well, maybe I'll think of it. Um, so I was curious with uh, you're taking samples. You're saying you're taking uh, or or doing like sequences of samples from cold cases. This is just a pure personal curiosity, but like, is there a, a shelf life on that kind of thing? I mean, I would think that you know, like like say say you had a bone fragment for some reason. Well, like the bone fragment in storage is going to be fine. Like it's not going to decompose, but I just wondered if, you know, at the DNA level, if, if like there's an unraveling over time or, or if like the, this integrity of the sample can be um, relied on over a, a variable amount of time. So that's a really good question. And, in, and there is some, some level of degradation of nucleic acids over time. And, uh, you know, but some of the bone fragments we worked on, you know, were decades old and it kind of, sometimes you would get a, some high quality mitochondrial DNA from that. And sometimes you wouldn't. And, excuse me, we would, um, in order to sequence some of that mitochondrial DNA, we would amplify using uh, PCR to amplify uh, different portions of the mitochondrial genome. And we would use uh, several different areas so that you're not just relying on one portion of the mitochondrial genome being intact. Okay, so you may get, let's say, and I don't recall, honestly, to be to be truthful, the exact number of ones we did, but let's say for each sample, you try, you know, four sites and you, you know, you may get amplification of all four, or you might get amplification of just one or two, depending on the age of the sample. And then you can, but you, what we always do is compare it to a known Right, so if you had sequence from your un- your unknown, uh, and you you know you had you got some sequence from that, and then you compare it to a known individual, and does that match? So you know at one point, depending on the level of sites we were able to amplify or sections we could amplify, and the, the amount of match, you know a lot of times it was more like you would exclude somebody more than say it's definitely this person, right? Mm-hmm. So it it was more of a, a system of exclusion because mitochondria are transmitted from, you know, mother through son, mother to son and mother to daughter, right? So you're always getting your mother's mitochondrial DNA. So you would have the same mitochondrial sequence as your mother. Uh, so you really couldn't say it was, you know, you versus her who committed a crime, right? But it, it could exclude you um, from being, you know, a, a, a person from a different mother. Right. Oh, it's just I, it's essentially just another method to move forward. Whether you're trying to include or exclude somebody, it's you're just you're approaching the problem from two other two different sides, essentially, which depending on what you have to work with, like you mentioned, just like sometimes it's just pieces instead of the entire sequence. You do what you can <laughs> and what makes sense versus what you necessarily want to do, which is like. No, this is absolutely the, we have the whole thing. It matches perfectly. It's like no, it, you know, you just work with it. You can. Um, and there is also no mitochondria. So in, unless you have the hair shaft, the actual part that's you know stuck in the head, you mm-hmm. know, then you don't have any 
genomic DNA, right? So when you're actually just, so a lot of times with hair samples too, you know, you're working with, you know, more of a little piece of a hair sample and that does have mitochondria, but again, unless it has the shaft, then you're, you know, you can't isolate genomic DNA. So there are advantages and usefulnesses to still doing, you know, some mitochondrial uh, DNA forensics. Um, it's just that with the advantage of advance of genome technologies and sequencing nowadays, you know, if you have genomic material, it would be um, much more clear of whether there's an actual match or not. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it seems like no matter what project or research project you're working on, like you're, you seem to be focused on like the gene sequences and trying to figure out, you know, what genes play a role in whatever it is. Like, please correct me because I'm going to get this wrong. Sure. Like when you're talking about Nautilus and the development of muscles in the fly embryos, correct? You're, you're trying, trying, trying to figure out what, um, what do I want to say? What mechanism or what, what gene, look for the word, um, what thing, I'll just say thing, and you can, you can give me the actual word here in a minute, was telling the muscle to, to create this particular muscle, right? Right, right. Actually, that, that, I, that's a, a great explanation in that, you know, it's really about gene regulation and how genes are turned on and turned off and, you know, how, what are the processes involved and how genes are turned on and turned off and, you know, what networks um, might be involved or other processes and... I think um, a lot of those will affect, you know, cell fate choices. We know do we're going to become. With, we work on blood cell development now, and you know, when we start with a stem cell, is it going to eventually become a white blood cell, or is it going to become a red blood cell? You know, and we we look at um, how the how that cell fate decisions are made, and by learning more about those processes in a normal cell, and again, how genes are turned on and genes genes are turned off and all those regulatory mechanisms, uh, that can provide some insight into um, disease processes. You know, so you really got to kind of learn what's normal and how things work normally. And then you can ask those same questions by looking in, in some sort of disease state and, and learn more about that, right? Which the advantage, you know, down the road, your ultimate goal really is to improve, you know, human health and performance and so forth. And that's kind of what the vision project's about, right? So trying to figure out, so I, I tried to write a summary. You provided much more detail, but basically looking at genetic tra traits to determine like susceptibility to disease or resistance to a particular treatment. Exactly. So we, uh, so vision, which is sort of a bit of a uh, acronym, um, stands for validated systematic integration of hematopoietic epigenomes, which is a big mouthful. <laughs> really, what it really involves um, is that right now, we, we as a scientific community who are involved in a lot of um, um, gene regulation and DNA sequencing and, and so forth, means the amount of data that's being generated is uh, tremendous. And data generation is no longer the limiting factor. You know, back when sequencing was first, DNA sequencing first became more widely available, it was, you know, this big rush. Let's sequence everything. Sequence it all. <laughs> and, you know, and, and everyone was super excited, you know, and, and but the, the, there was a cost factor in that it was very, very expensive to um, both in reagents and uh, equipment and processing and, and all that. Uh, you know, it's a very expensive and time consuming. But data generation is no longer the limiting factor. And, and it's more now is how do we use all that information to extract what's relevant and make hypotheses and predictions and then test them. Right? So it's great to generate data, but unless you have ways to analyze it and pull out what's important, you know, it's not that useful, right? So, well, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. Uh, I was just going to ask, so are, are, are there people now like starting to subspecialize in like data science and going into, it's almost like, like uh, my significant other, she does some of this for a hospital, like entering data and then also going through the data to look at certain things for doctors and nurses and all this kind of stuff. So I'm cursory aware of some of the processes that go on in this kind of field. Um, but it seems like 
yeah, now you have all this data. Now you need somebody or somebody's to sit down and say, okay, how do we make all of this data into like fields? So it's not a bunch of disparate peer-reviewed papers, but it's, you know, data that it's like this field appears in this way in this paper and this paper and this paper so that you can start comparing apples to apples instead of, you know, essentially hoping that like your brain puts it all together and some useful information. I was just, so like, are people coming out from PhDs maybe similar to yours and saying, okay, I don't want to do the research. I want to figure out what the research is actually telling us. Absolutely. So I work, I don't want to say we're divided because we're not divided, but there's, there's the sort of the wet lab aspect where people still involved in data generation um, because we still need data to work with and ask questions. Uh, and, and science is mostly about asking questions and answering questions. And I think that some of the best scientists are individuals who know which questions to ask or can think of the best questions to ask and how to go about answering them. But then you also have what we call the dry lab people. So the, the wet lab people, which is it, mostly me, I'm more of a wet lab person. And, you know, I spend a lot of my time uh, moving small amounts of liquid from one tube to another. <laughs> but you, you have the uh, dry lab people who are mostly computational. And these are the people that are, you know, programmers. They know how to code. They're very, you know, computational, uh, I think. And, and also um, statisticians, you know, we need a lot of input. You know, we were, I work with some people who are much smarter than me, you know, who are, are experts in statistics. And when you know you're talking about very large data sets, you need those individuals. You need to know, um, you know, does this conclude, is this conclusion valid? Is, is you know, do we have the power um, of the data to make these conclusions or predictions? And, you know, so I, I think anyone who might be, that there's gonna be, a, there's no shortage of demand, I should say, that's a poor way of phrasing it. There's a lot of demand for uh, computational people. So if certainly those individuals may be going into who are in college now or, you know, thinking of going into that sort of field, you know, really brushing up on your statistics and coding skills, invaluable, invaluable. And even my son now who's in high school, I'm, I'm you know, he's, he's taking a coding class and I'm like, get a statistics class in there. You know, it just, I, I did not have that, um, you know, when I was going through college and even in the classes I took, <clears throat> excuse me, for my PhD, we just didn't have that big data then. And there was not that same demand for um, high level computing skills or statistics. And it's, it's very much needed. There's a huge demand for people uh, who, and they, it pays a higher salary a lot of times than people doing, you know, more wet lab work. So absolutely, we really need uh, a team effort nowadays to ask some of these big questions in science. It definitely seems like I, God, it just, uh, it kills me off the top of my head. I actually spoke to somebody who's a data scientist and he's done several different things. Um, but he is one of the, one of the only, um, I'm like, I have to like look up the episode right now. Cause I don't know why I'm blanking on his name. One of the only, only like 13 people to finish the Barkley Marathons. Are you oh, familiar with that race? Yes, yes, yes. Actually, I know someone who, who did that. Um, he, he was a grad student at, at Penn State. I'm drawing a, drawing a blank on his name. John Kelly. There we go. Okay. That wasn't the person I was thinking of. But there, I, do, I do personally know someone who, uh, who did the Barkley Marathons. It's crazy. Did you see the documentary? I did not, but John. I think John oh, is in. Yeah. I think John is in the documentary, and I had. I didn't before I spoke to him. It was episode thirty-one for anybody that wants to listen to John's interview. But before I had, I didn't have a chance to watch it before I had talked to him. But yeah, that's like that's what he's doing now. Is and we talked about just the, when we were growing up. John and I are of a similar age. It wasn't even a thing, and then all of a sudden, it's become this very important thing because we have the computational power now to actually go through these giant data sets and things. I think he's working on like cybersecurity mm. for like insurance firms or something, something very important. <laughs> so, um, funny, actually funny enough, our, one of our, uh, one of the people we used to collaborate with in the statistics department here at Penn state actually left to go work for a financial company in New York city. So I, I, you know, he was 
you know, it, it, if you have those skills, computational skills and the background, I mean, you can, you know, really use that to your advantage in a lot of fields. Yeah. But at the same time, I, you know, I kind of give John credit for being an important field, but I, I wanted to talk about the vision project because that seems like a very important field as well. Um, and part of what, like, I know you even said yourself a little bit self-deprecating that this, these, um, I'll call them quant heads just to be loving, um, are smarter than you, but it's, it's not, I don't, I don't believe that. I just think that they have a different field of expertise. <laughs> oh yeah. I know, but that's, you know, it's a, certainly a, a nice way of looking at it anyway. Um, yeah. So in this, this vision project, what we aimed to do was to figure out ways to integrate a lot of different data from different labs and different sources and find a way to uh, model our data, model the data, so then we can, you know, what insights can we get out of that? And we used a predictive modeling program called Ideas. I'm not going to go into the, the details of that, but it's it uses a, a modeling uh, method and. Um, so it's a, and I'll give you an ex example. So it looks at your, the, the out, like kind of output of the data and tries to figure out, um, what information might've, um, led to that. So let's say you looked at your activities over the course of a week and, you know, it was, well, I guess I just, most runners would run regardless of whether it's sunny or raining, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, let's let's uh, say though that um, you know you like to garden, right? And and you know you gardened on days, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. But on the other days, you know, you spent a lot of time cleaning. And you know, you might then be able to figure out based on looking at what you know activities you did, you know, what was the weather like on those days? You know, because most likely on the days it was gardening, it was not raining. Right. So, you know, the, the some of the statistics and integrative modeling kind of looks at the some of the output of the data and tries to um, predict what um, um, what sort of states, if you will, or, or in this case, the analogy, the weather, what what actually um, might have been. So that's kind of just like a general way of, of looking at how some of these modeling um, programs work. And what we were trying to do is identify different regions in the mouse uh, genome that play a role in regulation of blood cell development. So, you know, we collected a lot of different resources, ran some of these modeling programs, and um, attempted to, you know, uh, pull out or identify these different regions, which might be important. And then we are now in the process of validating or testing those predictions. And when I say that this can be applied to other uh, fields, it's because really the it's it's sort of a proof of proof of concept. Because in theory, you could integrate many different kinds of data in, you know, de depending on, on the field, and use this sort of modeling program uh, and then identify. Um, important regions in uh, the genome. That, so that when I say different fields, I mean, I'm still talking actually about, you know, more like genomics, but you maybe work on um, genes that might be involved in some other medical process or, um, you know, vision, like literal vision, <laughs> like an eye vision, not our vision of an acronym, or maybe in um, some other disease process like uh, Alzheimer's or whatever, you know, so you you can kind of feed various data in through what we call of our kind of our pipeline or integrative pipeline, you know, get your predictions and then test them. So by kind of going through this process, you know, we're hoping to show that this can be applied again in different areas to ask these questions. And we've come up with a number of different resources, um, mostly for, you know, clinicians who may work with patients who have blood cell disorders, uh, as well as other researchers. And we've made a lot of these tools available, um, you know, on different, uh, on a website where they can go in and kind of mine the data and ask different questions. Obviously, you're 
in the weeds right now, but I mean, is the, the idea that we eventually have the kind of predictive ability to figure out, I, th- I think your, your uh, background on the project uh, um, mentions precision medicine, basically trying to figure out, as I understand it, trying to figure out like what treatment's going to be most effective for each patient. I mean, is part of the goal to say, once we know your particular genome, we can figure out and dial in, in this case, treatment for you for a particular disease? That would be the goal. And I mean, of course, it's it's going to be more difficult with complex disorders. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're talking about monogenic diseases or diseases that are due to a mutation in one particular gene, you know, that sort of therapy is going to be much easier and more straightforward than something like um, diabetes or obesity, you know, which which have multiple factors and, and lifestyle components to it. So, but to, as one example that um, it might be kind of a, a good illustration is sickle cell disease. So sickle cell disease um, result is from a, a mutation in a gene that include, encodes um, beta subunit of hemoglobin. So in normal healthy individuals, um, Hemoglobin consists of four subunits, so we have two alpha subunits and two beta subunits, and they they allow that's in the red blood cells, and that carries oxygen. So if it's going to carry oxygen to all your tissues, and uh, then give, you know give the oxygen to the tissues, and um, the problem is with with people with sickle cell disease, they have a mutation in the beta subunit, which then does not the hemoglobin um, is in form properly and it causes like a sickling uh, phenotype or um, appearance to red blood cells where they almost look like a, like a moon, like a quarter moon. And that can be that, first of all, impairs uh, oxygenation of tissues. It can be very painful. And many, many individuals, particularly African-Americans um, in this country, uh, are disproportionately affected by sickle cell disease. It's a very... Uh, it's a lot of very poor quality of life. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the treatments today are, are mostly in the form of, you know, transfusions and so forth. But one potential treatment that's very exciting in the field right now um, has to do with um, some gene editing ex- experiments. And the reason is, is because when you're still developing um, as a fetus, you have, instead of expressing alpha globin and beta globin, you express alpha globin and gamma globin. So it's very similar to um, beta globin. It's just slightly different. And the, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly one uh, reason that there is that difference is when the you know um, mother is carrying the baby, the gamma globin has a very high, has a higher affinity for, um, and the hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen than the beta globin. So that allows you know, the, the fetus to get that oxygen, right, from the mother's blood. Okay. So, but in, once you're born, that your expression uh, of the levels of gamma globin drop dramatically, and instead of expressing gamma globin, you express beta globin. So that's the adult form, right? Now in, so one of the treatments that's being explored right now for sickle cell patients is to find ways to turn on that gamma globin gene. So, you know, it's still there, it's still in your genome, it's just not mm-hmm. being expressed. And one of the key players in keeping that gamma globin re- repressed is a protein called BCL11A. And what that does is it's called a repressor. And what I mean by that is it prevents expression of gamma globin. And so one of the experiments, if you're trying to edit the genes so that you can allow gamma globin to be expressed. And in proof of concept, I mean, there's been, they've shown that um, this, you know, this works in cell culture. And, and I think there may be some clinical trials, you know, with various uh, gene editing in, uh, you know, tech trials to try and increase gamma globin expression. And, you know, you can get uh, increase in normal blood cells, in normal looking blood cells, suggesting so better oxygenation and so forth. And, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing about, Um, blood cells is 
you know, you, you have access to stem cells. You know, you could, in theory, take out stem cells from a person's bone marrow and, you know, do some gene editing and put them back in and perhaps, you know, have a, that population expand enough to, you know, produce enough normal cells with gamma globin and alpha globin to allow, you know, the person better oxygenation, better quality of life. You know, there, I mean, there are some problems with gene editing right now, and there are some, you know, off-target effects, meaning it might not just edit where you want it to edit, but there might be other problems. And so, I mean, there's still a lot that needs to be done, but I think we're getting much closer. And that's like a really, I think, pretty straightforward um, gene, you know, pretty straightforward disease to try and tackle using gene editing. So we work with some collaborators uh, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and St. Jude's Children's Hospital, you know, that are working on these sorts of projects. And we do a lot of DNA sequencing for them and some data analysis. And it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting field. I, so this is kind of this is I, I'm jumping forward in the research because this this is just the pop culture head my that's going on there. I'm like, okay, where where are we going? Um, so I, it makes me wonder. So if the if the um, beta globin is the the issue, and we turn on the gamma globin to essentially resolve the oxygenation issue with sickle cell. Is the goal basically to repress beta globin and switch it back to alpha and gamma entirely, or is it simply um, having like a portion of your blood cells as alpha gamma and then the the other portion as the normal like adult expression of alpha and beta? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think that the goal or the would be to completely replace that. I think okay, the idea though is your your it's with this sort of treatment, you're hoping to provide enough uh, modified or edited cells to overcome um, the clinical um, manifestations, right? So, you, you know, I don't think you're ever going to be completely normal, like normal levels of, of hemoglobin, but, you know, can you um, meet a threshold? Now, I mean, where things go down the road, you know, uh, right. happen, but uh, you know, that's really kind of, I think where the current thoughts are. So it's essentially just like a, the way I guess I think about it would be if you could successfully do this in a person, I know for, at least from the sound of it, we're ways off from like any kind of clinic, human clinical trial. But um, if you could successfully do this in a person, it's almost like uh, a self-replicating therapy instead of like having to get transfusions to you know fix the issues of the blood. Am I am I on on yeah, pace yeah. there? I think there are some clinical trials working on, on okay effects of of editing. Um, I'm not involved with those, so I, I don't want to like comment on any right. details. You know, I'm definitely more on the basic research side. But we are our collaborators are working with some of our collaborators are working with some sickle cell patients. You know, or blood from you know, various patients and, and, you know, human blood. So, um, I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I, that's, uh, that, that, I think that pretty much got it. Um, and we're running short on time. So, uh, we could probably keep going cause you've, <laughs> you've done a lot. Uh, but before we run out of time, so in the interviews you listened to, I don't know if you got to the point where I, I had a question I asked everybody in season one. We're now in season two because this is the second year I've been doing the show. So this year I'm asking everybody is an opinion question. What do you think the purpose of sport is? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, for, I think for me, I think it's, in, I think it's been key to help build confidence and resilience. And I think it's also helped me learn to manage my time and priorities. You know, I, I think everyone has their own view or, or purpose of why they do it. But um, of course, the, there's, obviously, there's obvious health benefits, right, from exercise and so forth. Um, I, I admit it too, I think it also, um, for me meets a bit of a psychological need too, because I like to push myself. I like to be competitive and, uh, you know, I, I'm 48, but I, I still aim for those, uh, overall places. I mean, I'm not, I'm not ready to settle for eight, you know, too many age groups, but I, I've been forced to, you know, face my, my, uh, my age a bit, but, uh, 
I, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I'm going to go with, yeah, I, I, I really like the, I think, confidence and resilience and, and time in managing your, your, your time and, and uh, your life. It's just a question. It's, it's something I think about sometimes. So I'm like, why don't I ask people I'm talking to and see what they think? Um, just because What's it's, <laughs> yeah, well, it's like everybody's experience is, you know, a little bit different and people go out for sport when they're younger or, and then stop when they're older or start when they're older and never have done it. And I think people come to running in particular for lots and lots of reasons. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, that's that interest in psychology part of me where I'm like, you know, what do you think about it? What, you know, what's your motivation to do whatever it is that you do? So, um, Cheryl, if people want to see like the research that you've done or kind of keep up with what you're doing, is there a good place to find you or follow you or anything like that? Yeah, I think honestly, Twitter is probably the easiest place to get in touch with me. I have been a little quiet on Twitter the last uh, few weeks or month. I've had a lot of other things going on at work, but I'm normally pretty active on Twitter and I'm there at Keller Capone, PhD. And uh, I am also on Instagram at Cheryl Keller Capone um, for more research-oriented information or collaborations. Probably finding me on LinkedIn might be uh, good too. But either way, any social uh, questions about so research or triathlon or strength training or anything fun, uh, Twitter is probably the, the best bet. Sounds good. Thanks for spending time with me today, Cheryl. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Take care.